0: Fit toys.
1: Welcome to episode 670 with my guest, Nicolette Heidegger. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. God bless you. Welcome. Did I mention my name? Paul Gilmartin. That's a name I was given at birth, and I have not changed it. I thought about changing it to uh, the Silver Fox. Uh, I've thought about changing it to uh, Super Lumberjack or Lumberjack Super, which is the guy who is in charge of the lumberjacks who live in an apartment building. Oh, my God. I'm so close to starting this podcast over. Thank you uh, to those of you who are signing up at uh, on Patreon. Um, we have just cracked uh, the eight hundred mark for uh, people, eight hundred patrons per month, and for the podcast to break even, we need about fifteen hundred. Um, I debated on whether or not to to share this, but the the podcast is hemorrhaging money and I'm blowing through my savings and I'm I have a, I I have faith that uh, we will get to the point where um, I'm not blowing through the money I've set uh, set aside for for retirement and uh, I would love it if any of you who have the financial means you can become a donor for as little as a dollar a month and every bit helps. Um, And those of you that uh, are already at the $20 and above monthly donation, uh, you qualify to join our Sunday afternoon Zoom support group hangout. And uh, we average about somewhere between uh, 15 and 22 people a week. And it's just, uh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Let's read some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by um, somebody who calls themselves, a woman who calls herself, there's something in the way, yeah. I think that's, isn't that a Nirvana song? Uh, what would you like to ask Paul? Hi, Paul, I'm wondering on whether you have any rituals or such that you do in the mornings, etc., or other things that you've noticed work for mental health that you do throughout your week. There's so many advice is out there on healthy rituals. Curious to hear if you have any. Thank you for this show. It's truly a gem that I value so highly. I guess it's one of my rituals to listen to it every Friday. I appreciate that. Thank you. And, uh, well, the first ritual, uh, that I do in the morning and I try, I try to do, I'd say I probably do it maybe five to six, sometimes every day, uh, is I, Pray and meditate. I meditate first for I'm supposed to do it for 20 minutes. Don't don't tell the, me, the meditation police that sometimes it's five, ten minutes. But it's better than nothing. Even if you meditate for two minutes, it is better than nothing. And um, and then I pray, and lately I have been praying for the people that I is hate too strong of a word? And super, super resentful at. Uh, who I feel anger and rage at. Most of them are public figures or organizations. And I imagine each person and pray for them to have a fulfilling life with joy and security. Um, And it helps. It does help dissipate. And that is not something I came up with on my own. It was uh, suggested by people who it has worked for in my support groups. And then I say the serenity prayer to help me understand the difference between the things I have control over and the things I don't have control over. That's a huge one. And it just reminds me, you know, if you can't control it, fucking let it go. It doesn't mean I have to like it. Um... Yeah. So those are the the things I do. And then I do uh, yoga for eight seconds. And that's not an exaggeration. I'm like, yeah, I need to stretch out. Oh my God, this is boring. Let's go drink coffee. And then throughout the day, I usually talk to uh, anywhere from one to three people from my support group, whether they call me or I call them and ask them how how they're doing. Uh, Two to three nights a week, I go to a support group meeting. I try to be helpful, um, and I would say those are and those those are the, the big ones. that try to eat healthy, um, yeah. So I hope I hope that helps. But a really important one is just getting out of myself, just stopping the self obsession because um, it's <laughs> it is a prison. Self obsession is a prison. And it has taken me a while to understand the difference between self-reflection and self-obsession. And I don't know if if I can articulate the difference, Um, but there you have it. Great question. Thank you for that. This is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Visage. And uh, she writes, Hi, Paul, and hello to everyone listening right now. I'm sure you get asked this question quite a lot. And you might have previously answered it, so I'm sorry in advance to make you repeat. But one of my friends is going through something quite tough at the moment, and I'm not sure how to help her, so I'm coming to you for advice. This person has told me early in our friendship that she was suffering from chronic depression and had suicidal ideation, but not tendencies as far as I know. She was on medication when I met her and stopped them after a while as she felt she didn't really need them anymore. Now I am lucky, I grew up in a very open-minded and mental illness-educated household with a psychiatrist dad and a therapist mom who were both very open and honest about mental health, but I grew up to be quite an emotionally anxious uh, empath, so every time someone dear to me struggles, my instinctual reaction is to do anything I can to make them feel better. Now, in the case of that friend and many others throughout my life, whenever she's telling me how she feels, I tend to want her to see, quote, the other side, unquote. I try to tell her how things look from my point of view or how whatever she perceives might be influenced by her depression. But lately I've realized what it may sound like to her is I'm negating her feelings, it may sound like I'm not letting her feel what she's feeling, then I'm trying too hard to make her, quote, change her mind, unquote. At the same time, I'm also afraid of agreeing with her because I don't want her to think whatever, that whatever depression makes her feel is true, although it is real. I don't know if I make any sense. Basically, my question is, what can I do? slash say to help her without making her feel that she's wrong to feel what she's feeling. This is such a great question and I totally get what you're what you're asking and this is so important. This is so important. The first thing that I would do is I would ask her, "How can I help you? Would you like me to just listen? Would you like my perspective? Would you like any advice?" And the second thing I would try to be mindful of, and this is more in the long run kind of a thing, is if you begin to feel drained by this, that nothing is changing and she is not trying anything, then if you're feeling drained or resentful, find a kind way to let her know that it's frustrating as you, her friend, to hear her experiencing the same thing, but not trying anything. Um, because in my opinion, and this is just me, it's almost like somebody with an addiction. Um, I, I believe that we can enable them um, by... Not mentioning that we're feeling drained or frustrated by them repeatedly saying the same thing without putting any effort in to try to change things. So I hope that helps. And again, that's just my personal opinion. And I have done that. I did it with somebody and um, they stopped calling me. And I'm okay with that because I expressed it in terms of my feelings. I didn't tell them they were wrong for not trying anything. I just said... I, I, I'm I'm feeling drained, and I hope you don't take it personally, but I just need to set a boundary uh, on that. This is an email I got from, uh, how does she want to be referred to as? Um, Brittany. And uh, she writes, I'm writing this after listening to the episode with M. Schultz from ten or, uh, October 10th. I felt compelled to write this after hearing the survey by Danny, uh, aged 56. I just want to say that she did not deserve what happened to her. I hope she can find a safe person to share her story with. One possible resource would be rain.org, That's spelled R-A-I-N-N.org. They have a national sexual assault hotline. You can call or chat online, and it's anonymous. You can also search for a local sexual assault survivor program in your area. I used to be a volunteer advocate at one of these local groups. I was so touched when someone would trust me enough to share their most painful story with me. I hope that sharing their trauma with me was a positive step in their journey. I've also been on the other side of the coin. Some of the most healing experiences in my life have been having my pain witnessed by a compassionate person. If anything, I want, I want Danny to know that her trauma experience was heard by me. I felt tearful. If I could see her, I would hug her and em- emphatically say, it wasn't your fault. You did not deserve what happened to you. Whether or not she chooses to share this part of her story with anyone else, I want her to know that someone out there heard her and felt her pain. Thank you for that, Brittany. And again, that organization is Rain.org. That's spelled R-A-I-N-N.org. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Too Many Things Are Taboo. Uh, What were or are your issues or struggles? I was emotionally abused during my childhood and sexually abused uh, Parentheses violently and for several years as a teenager for years I dissociated now I'm in therapy and learning to face and heal from the trauma It seems like dissociation was so much easier than facing the pain But the reality is I was acting out sexually to dull any emotions. I would feel I sought help once uh, I sought help once I cared that my acting out was affecting my healthy relationships. Now I struggle with self-harm though, compulsive masturbation, and in parentheses, which I wish more people, especially women, would admit to doing because when I admit it, I feel humiliated, lonely, and shameful. Uh, and I just want to add, I know many fem- females um, from my support groups who struggle with that or have struggled with it, and you are definitely, definitely not alone in that. What has helped you deal with your struggles? Learning and accepting that my struggles are part of my healing process and that I am not alone, although I wish my past and struggles were never experienced by others. Learning where my emotional limits are so that I can start to slow down and not push myself over the edge learning how to set boundaries, being gentle with myself, even if I self-harm. I am not a failure when I act out, but I have more work to do. All of these things once felt impossible, but I've learned how to do them a little at a time. I still have a long way to go. I would not have started healing without therapy. And I'm so glad that you had mentioned about the acting out and it numbing us. And the other side of that coin, if we can withdraw from that drug in our brain, the acting out drug, because it is addictive, um, we can, on the other side of that, uh, it's almost like our body winds down to a state of, of being less activated and we can begin to enjoy things that are subtle. We get more in touch with our body, but when we're numbed, to feel anything, we need a cattle prod. We need something really intense to feel anything. So it's like you get caught in this cycle of um, needing something, and the very thing then numbs you. So I'm glad. I'm really glad that you mentioned it, and I love. That you're gentle with yourself even when you're self-harming. I love that. Nobody has ever, say this a thousand times, nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be. Uh, And I love that you're taking actions, you know, that you are trying to help yourself. And boundaries are huge. They're so huge. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you? My therapist tells me that I am not alone. Others have the same struggles. He responds calmly when I tell him the details of what I've done to myself. He gives me a space to talk openly and honestly about everything, including my compulsive behaviors. He has taught me to accept that everything isn't black or white, including my sexual acting out. It helps protect me from the emotional pain that I'm not ready to experience. It isn't good or bad. It just is. And it will get better as I heal. It already has. I'm no longer destroying my relationships. Finding this podcast has also helped make me feel that I am not alone and has lowered the level of shame I feel. It is sad hearing others' experiences in the surveys you read and the guests you have on the show, but I'm grateful they are willing to share openly. When people talk candidly about what society has deemed shameful or wrong, it sure helps to destigmatize it and make it okay to get help. Uh, Any comments to make the podcast better? Just wanted to say that the new commercials aren't bothersome at all. Most podcasts have them, so you don't need to worry so much about how they come off. Uh, I would much rather listen to your podcast with commercials than not have the podcast at all. That means a lot to me because I do worry about the fact that I've had to add those announcer-read ads as opposed to the to the ones where, where I read them. I try, uh, and the ad agency I work with tries to get me uh, the ads where I read them because um, I prefer them because they're less jolting. But uh, it is, as you say in your survey, it is what it is, but thank you for weighing in on that. Uh, this is from the i shouldn't feel this way survey and this is filled out by um, a person who calls himself big nap how would you like people to think of you as kind and genuine how does it feel writing that it feels true how would you use a time machine i'd go back in time and save someone i love who died very young Ah, oh, that is so that's so sad um I'm supposed to feel worried about how depressed I felt lately, but I'm actually just kind of relieved to get a break from my usual crippling anxiety. When I'm depressed enough, it's almost like I lose my fear of death and loss. I stop having panic attacks, I sleep a lot, I cry a lot. I have no desire to talk to or be with anyone. I'm not bored because I'm not searching for something to interest and distract me because absolutely nothing interests me. I can just lay down and stare at a wall. Being depressed makes me feel like I'm all alone at the bottom of the deep, dark ocean just sitting there. But in some ways, it's so much easier than when I'm happy and can appreciate all the things I have to lose. Wow. And how does it feel to make you write your real feelings out? It feels interesting, and I gotta say that 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 is interesting, and um, and a great example of the fact that you know every person experiences their depression and the, their anxiety, you know, a, a little bit, a little bit differently. I mean, there are so many similarities, but yeah, thank you for articulating that. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by Lonnie or Laney, uh, and Laney writes: "I love the sound of crickets at night. I love getting a horse to canter the first try. I love the smell of my boyfriend's hair on my pillow. I love when my meds work, and I love that moment right before I catch myself not thinking." Those are awesome, and there's nice little kind of through line. And the survey's uh, about turning turning the brain off in a good way. Uh, Let's take a tiny break and see if we have any ads to run. And then uh, finally, uh, this is our last survey before the interview with Nicoletta. This is from the FEARS survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself stranded at the station. Share something you fear. Will I ever find a partner? Throughout my 20s, I rejected almost everyone because I, unbeknownst to myself, was terrified of love and being hurt and rejected. All I wanted was a partner, but I was so anxious over not being good enough for the men I thought were attractive. The ones that liked me, I discarded because I felt no spark. Now I'm in my mid-30s and I'm wondering, or put more correctly, I'm terrified that I let my chances for love go? Is it too late? Dating apps are not the easiest thing to navigate for a sensitive soul and most of my friends are settled with kids. I hope I will find love but I'm afraid the love train left me stranded at the station. My consciousness might be disintegrated heavy-weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and I can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and I can't see straight I couldn't even drive the first movie that I remember watching with him
0: post-traumatic stress when I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction
1: and Moral Injury I
0: would act out the scenes gonna go to hell with my Barbies
1: (laughs) The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. ...is
0: very hard to heal in dark isolation.
1: I developed compassion.
0: It is in connection and community where that happens.
1: The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I'm here with Nicoletta Heidegger, uh, and you are... you're an LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and you're getting your doctorate in human sexuality? Is that, is, is that correct?
0: Yeah. So I actually, I got my master's of education in human sexuality and I was on that PhD track and then I totally got burnt out and I was like, I've had enough of school and <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> so I decided to pause on my PhD. Maybe I'll go back. Maybe I won't, but two masters was enough.
1: Yeah, that's that seems like a lot.
0: It was a lot, yeah. And I kept going from undergrad to grad school to grad school without taking time off. And it's kind of what we're taught in this culture, right? To just just keep going, just keep just going. Just keep going. And I realized it wasn't feeling good. It wasn't serving me anymore. And um, I was like, I don't want to do things anymore just because I should do them. Right. So I didn't.
1: Was part of that... Did that come natural to you, that decision, or was part of that where you had to uh, kind of be your own therapist?
0: Uh, No, it did not come naturally. I probably put it off for about a year (laughs) of torturing myself and being like, I don't want to do this, but I just want to get that title. I just want to finish it. I just, you know, I started it, so I don't want to feel like I wasted all this time. And um, I grew up in a high achieving household and also in the US with all the capitalism things and the. No pain, no gain approach of like, you just have to do this and then it will be worth it. So it was not natural for me, but I would say it has been a step towards practicing not doing that. But it's still a struggle.
1: That you're the, the mean part of your brain kind of uh, tells you, you know, you're you're lazy or whatever, what, what, what are some of the greatest? I
0: can't, you finish this. Oh, your friend just finished theirs. If you just tried a little harder, if you this, if you that. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of working with that and and undoing and challenging that. And as you said, my, my own therapist voice, as well as my, my therapist therapist's voice, (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. uh, your undergrad was at Stanford. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you did come from a high achieving family. (laughs) Wow, was yeah. that a uh, a nice place to be as an undergrad?
0: Oh, it was awesome. You know, I I never actually thought I would I would get in. It was I mean, I put an effort to the application, but I was I was really considering a lot of other schools, and I was I was pretty shocked when I when I got that acceptance letter because I I had good grades and things, but my test scores weren't like in whatever the ranges you would think would be Stanford applicable. Um, I had a great time, honestly, best. I'd like to say best four years of my life, but I'm trying to also change that narrative of that the best years are behind me kind of vibe. Yes. <laughs> um, but it was great. I actually was the mascot um, at Stanford, which is a tree. Um, and that was a blast. And that's kind of where I started my my sexuality career as well.
1: Uh, boy, a lot to uh, unpack there. <laughs> Because as we all know, trees are very sexy. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I do feel that way. I'm a woodworker and I find, I don't know about sexy, but. Um, we can make
0: a lot of wood jokes, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> I just have always been drawn to wood because each piece of wood has its own grain, its own properties that are difficult to work with yeah. and wonderful to work with. They're it, kind of like people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: And, they're, and trees are very sensual, too. I mean, the smell, the look, the way they move. Yeah. You know, there's... Um, I love trees, obviously. Yeah. And my column, I had a sex column in the newspaper called Sex Talks with the Tree. so That's
1: <laughs> fantastic. Definitely. So were time. you the mascot at sporting events?
0: Yes. Oh, my God. hmm Football games, basketball games, volleyball games. We also got hired to do parties and events and things because everyone all the alumni wanted the tree at their things, uh, birthday parties, all kinds of stuff.
1: So how did that connect to your sexuality?
0: Uh, You know, I mean, I wouldn't say there was necessarily a direct connection, but the the indirect connection is one of, like, creativity and things like that. But I sort of just used my platform as a public figure on campus to um, be able to host this column in the newspaper where I interviewed people about different you know, sexuality topics. And so it was sort of a way for me to, um, have a wider platform and, and get some, get some listenership and viewership.
1: And were you known as the tree or did you use your name?
0: I was known as the tree. Technically it didn't say my name, but everyone, unlike other schools where a lot of the mascots are secret, everyone knows who you are and you know, they, they knew my face and things like that. So I'm, I'm proud of it. I've definitely grown a lot since those columns, but I've gone back and read it recently, and it was cool to see how progressive I actually was, I think, for that time and some of the topics I was covering.
1: What were some of the uh, topics?
0: Talked about um, sex and disability, uh, sex work, non-monogamy, how to talk about STI status, um, mental health and and sexual health in general, pleasure. um, Yeah, topics that I still am passionate about today, but I was... Still, I was starting to be passionate about them then, so it's cool to see how it's evolved.
1: What did you find? I, I assume that you took anonymous questions from students, or did would you just pick a topic and kind of espouse on it?
0: Yeah, sometimes I took anonymous questions from students, but it was maybe l- less advice and more like interviewing. So I would pick a, a topic that I was excited about or one that I had heard a lot of people talking about in my community because I also worked as a, a peer counselor in the sexual health resource center on campus so people would come in and ask questions so I would sometimes pick things that I heard people talking about or people struggling with and would interview people sometimes anonymously sometimes not about their experience and then have it be kind of educational and journalistic as well as um, seeing a human experience from that perspective
1: what were you majoring in psychology okay yeah uh and was that something that you were drawn to from an early age
0: yeah you know i my parents or i would say my mom um sent me to therapy when i was a young adolescent teenager and i was very resistant at first you know i had that that trope of like well i'm not crazy i don't have anything to talk about like i don't want to go and uh she kind of convinced me by being like well you know you can just go talk shit about me for an hour a week oh
1: my god i love your mom
0: (laughs) she's great uh, and so, you know, that sort of, I was like, great, because I have a lot to say. <laughs> and so I went and I had a great therapist. I, I worked with her for, I sometimes still work with her, but gosh, it's, you know, 15 plus years um, that she was like in my life and through college. And so she was a great therapist. She kind of had some specializations and sexuality and relationships and helped me a lot with my own stuff. And then, um, I would say other things kind of got me more interested in the sexuality track specifically, but psychology-related, um, at least since high school, I've kind of had that interest, um, and it just kind of has grown.
1: And, you know, the the trope, uh, physician heal thyself, uh, kind of the stereotype, is that a lot of therapists are drawn to it to to... Work try on our to, stuff? <laughs> yeah, to try to figure their shit out. Right. Um you know but i also feel that that in le- leading a life where we are self reflective and looking at society as a whole that um those are the people that make the best mental health professionals
0: yeah I mean of course I believe that people need to do a certain amount of work on themselves so they're not spilling out their trauma to their clients and you know as you're talking about there's this concept of the the wounded healer right we're all mm-hmm. humans just trying to do our best to human and it can feel really nice to connect with clients um, who see you as a real person too who's either worked through that stuff and now they see you on the other side or maybe is even still working through it and then they don't feel alone so I do think It's important I do the work that I ask my clients to do as well because it gives me more compassion and empathy for them and their process because I know how hard it is and I know what it takes. So, of course, I can't go through everything that each one of my clients has gone through and I do think we can help people even on topics maybe we haven't experienced, but some level of going through the mental health experience uh, would be a necessity, I would say, to be able to help other people.
1: So what were some of the signs that led your mother to say, I want to treat you to some therapy? (laughs) Hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd I'd have to ask her, but I feel like I was just kind of that adolescent. I was feeling like a little bit more combative. I was always like a pretty well-behaved kid, but um, I had worked with a sports psychologist as well because I was a competitive equestrian. And I would get really hard on myself. So, like, when I wouldn't win, when I didn't do well, I would just cry and have a total meltdown, um, total perfectionistic about it. And so that, um, in addition, I think just, like, kind of the general, like, teenage angst family dynamic stuff. And so, you know, her and I were fighting, or I was um, just putting a lot of pressure on myself. Um, And I think she had also seen how maybe some some of the things that, she had experienced in her life maybe she didn't know how to help me with or was concerned she didn't have the the background or was working on some of those topics herself and so um luckily she was pro-therapy and and thought it would be helpful for me to have someone who wasn't her um be an extra support system
1: what an intuitive yeah what a gift for sure that's that's so great and the fact that she wasn't like you're fucked up and you need to change yeah. Uh, I mean, don't let me put words in her mouth. But the fact that she said you can just go and talk shit about me, I mean, exactly. that's.
0: yeah, that's, that gave me the permission to uh, to do it, and then I was able to go in and start reflecting on my own stuff and work on it. But that was definitely a helpful doorway um, that took some of the pressure off of me. I think.
1: Talk about perfectionism, and yeah. um, if any, some of the issues seemingly unrelated to that um, can actually be connected to it, whether it's trauma, you know, not identifying our own needs, unconditional yeah. love, what you, whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, perfectionism can be, as you said, attached to so many different things. I think, you know, for me, um, I grew up in a, like I said, a high-achieving family. And so I saw parents who really like themselves up by their bootstraps and made, you know, a, a life for themselves and had their own success. And so I think um, my dad also, uh, I'm first generation on his side. He's from Austria. Um, and so he was a professional athlete. And so there's this uh, pressure a little bit, too, of I think, you know, they really wanted this sort of like American dream for us in a lot of ways and and to be able to give us all these opportunities and things that maybe they didn't have. And so I think there was unintentional pressure of wanting to allow us to have all the opportunities that we could have, and so that kind of resulted in, you know, wanting us to to do well or giving us a lot of opportunities to practice doing well. And then I really internalized that and, and put it on myself. And um, later I also got you know diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and so there's a big intersection there too for folks who have any sort of you know neurodiversity um, that we can get even more perfectionistic and struggle with that self-confidence piece because the way that we think is different than how we're supposed to be in a classroom setting, which was created by some old white dude in whatever century to get people to follow and listen to instructions and sit and be part of the machine, you know? Yeah. So I think not knowing that and feeling like I had to try 10 times as hard, which I later now know, to be able to do certain things Uh, mixed with wanting to kind of live up to this expectation and seeing the doors that could be opened if I worked hard like my parents did. um, Just put a lot of pressure on. And um, I think something that a lot of people don't see as being connected to perfectionism is um, putting things off. And so... I
1: I totally get that. There are times when I want to go woodwork Yeah, but the fear of fucking up a piece Mm -hmm. of wood or not being able to do it perfectly gets me so filled with anxiety I go down and take a nap.
0: Totally. Like, I think when people think of perfectionists, they often think of someone who has, like, the house is clean, everything's put away perfectly, everything's done this way. And maybe some perfectionists are like that who can get into kind of an obsessive loop, but I think for a lot of the rest of us it looks different and it it can look more like a frozen state where you're kind of in a shame spiral about, well, like you said, if I can't do this right, if I don't have the right amount of time, it's not going to be good, I'm going to put it off. And then at least when I do it, I can make the excuse like, oh, well, I I just did it last minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that's been a struggle too, is sometimes I will put things off because there's a fear that it won't be done a certain kind of way. So it can be be quite difficult to find motivation when you're in that loop.
1: So... What do you advise a client when they're going through that? Or what did you learn about yourself to help yourself deal with that?
0: Yeah. I mean, something you said before relates to that. And I think first kind of figuring out and honoring why our bodies or minds think that we needed to be in that perfect mindset in order to be safe, in order to exist, in order to survive. So for me, it was like, oh, if I do things this way, I get recognition if I win at this horse competition, oh, my parents will be so proud or people will know me or people will want to interview me and talk to me and and think I'm something special. And so I was kind of, it was a feedback loop of getting that. And then if I didn't do well, oh, I didn't get that attention or, oh, I got negative attention or people didn't want to know me or whatever. And so I think the first step is kind of honoring our minds and bodies learned that it was safer or better to do that and and really taking the time to honor that of like clearly you're doing what your body thinks it needs to do in order to get through life and so that's kind of the the first step for me and then kind of that psychoeducation piece so teaching people kind of about that loop and then we're kind of doing trauma therapy sometimes because it can be a trauma um, or we're doing getting to the root cause, right? Like, is there something like ADHD? Is there trauma? Is there something else going on here? Um, and then, depending on that root cause, you know, we'll take the time to start kind of undoing that narrative, um, both by practicing it in real time in therapy, where they can't be perfect in therapy, and to have somebody like me not get them in trouble, not be disappointed with. To have a corrective experience in real time to work through it um experientially, I think can be really healing for folks.
1: Did you think your therapist was bullshitting you at first? Like I'm I'm paying her, so of course she's coddling me.
0: I don't know if uh I don't know. I I think it can be hard for a lot of folks to believe that their therapist cares about them if they're paying them. Um, but I'd like to think that in time, at least this was my experience of like yes, of course, this is your job. I'm paying you. And to be able to, I find that I can't do great work with people unless I feel really connected to them. Like, And so I think ideally people learn over time that there's there's more to it.
1: What does that connection look like outwardly or is it just completely within yourself?
0: Um, I mean, I think it depends on the client, but outwardly it looks like attunement. So attunement meaning I'm trying to be really present with somebody and not just what they're saying, but with their body language, with the way they're speaking, with little movements and and how they are. Um, But it also means being kind of real with somebody for when I miss something or when there's a lack of attunement or they don't feel seen or they feel some kind of negative thing about the way we're interacting, even if it's not my quote unquote fault and being able to like share in that apology or that disappointment or um, yeah, however they have have felt disconnected or let down.
1: Any particular examples come, come to mind?
0: I don't know if I can think of one specifically but just like for example let's say I'm working with a, I guess this has happened in some way, shape or form, but let's say I'm working with a couple and in one session and this could be doesn't have to be someone's fault but based on their their own stuff based on how the session is going let's say they feel that i didn't hear them and i was siding with the partner or something Mm -hmm. like that um then the next time if they were willing to give feedback we get to like sit in and process like how that felt and i get to recognize i get to honor that i get to validate that i get to take in that and and kind of help them feel heard and seen um I can't remember exactly what the numbers are but I think there was a study that was done about like parents and children and they said that you only have to be like Attuned or something like uh, 40% of the time (laughs) Uh, But basically it was sort of saying that like you don't have to be perfect kind of back Mm -hmm. to that theme But as long as you can find ways to have corrective resolution um, It can be okay you're not gonna mess it up forever (laughs)
1: I had a therapist tell me once that the manner in which you come back together uh, after a disruptive disagreement and a a romantic relationship can, much like the tree that, you know, whose limb cracks and then it heals itself and it's even Mm -hmm. stronger than it was before. Exactly. And um, one of the things that was a revelation to me in going to support groups was the importance of the willingness to have difficult conversations mm-hmm. and navigate that unknown and all the anxiety and the yeah. desire to control it or be the victor, mm-hmm. uh, facing all of that is yeah. is so, so huge. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I never knew that I would feel closer mm-hmm. to somebody. After conflict. After conflict, and obviously yeah. it depends on the way that they handled it and did they right. own their stuff? Did I own yeah. my stuff? Did we you know, did we both kind of uh get off our chest what what we wanted to say?
0: And I like to caveat that this does this is not we're not talking about like an emotionally or physically abusive situation Correct. where it's like, oh, they did this horrible thing, but their apology was great and now they're love bombing me and doing all this nice stuff. Uh we're talking about a different kind of repair, yeah. not the loop of abuse where it's like terrible thing and the nice thing, and we hold on to the nice right. thing and we stay. Right. So right. I just want to caveat that. Yeah. No. Like yeah. I
1: told you, I was going to pick you up at the airport, and I totally <laughs> spaced out, and that's the second time I've done it in yeah. our relationship. And
0: yeah, different. I think other ways that I build connection is holding strong boundaries. Um. So a lot of people have had boundary crossings. So I'm I'm holding a a boundaryed space. Whether that be with my time, with their time, with how we talk about things, um, I'm also my approach is one that comes from like not a lot of shame, so creating like a safe space for people to like be their total selves and not to be um, scared or shaming or intimidated by the shadow parts of them that they vulnerably introduce me to.
1: Well, what a great way to segue into uh, sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that your uh, PR person uh, offered as a topic is uh, talking about BDSM as a, a source of healing. Oh yeah, uh, and and that you have personally uh, experienced. Yeah, definitely. That, uh, as much as you're comfortable, uh, can you share about that?
0: Sure. Um, so for folks who don't know. I don't know, have you talked about BDSM much on the podcast? We've we've
1: touched on it, but I don't know if we've ever done many deep dives into it.
0: Okay, so it's a it's a four-letter acronym, but it actually stands for three couplings of words, so six words. It's um, bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism, um, which can mean a whole bunch of different things. But a lot of people just say kink, um, and I okay. guess when I think of kink, I think of an adult playground where we get to explore sensations. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear kink and BDSM, they think like dark dungeon and pain and chains. And like, sure, it can be that. But that is one sensory experience. There's a whole lot of other sensory experiences that could fit under this umbrella um, of kink and BDSM. And so, of course, I like to preface it by saying and BDSM is not a replacement for therapy, uh, but I do think it can be a really excellent adjunct to help people have corrective experiences um, and to be able to find ways to be in relationship with the shadow parts of themselves. And so I think for me, the way it's been most healing is it's given me a space to play again. So I think with the perfectionism that we were talking about, Um, And growing up in this culture, there's there's a lot of ways that we're taught that we need to work first and then then if we have time, we can play later, right? Right. Do your homework first and then play later. Um, And now I know that play and pleasure are essential to survival and essential to healing as opposed to something we deserve when we're finished or when we're healed. Um, And so for me, kink and BDSM has been an area where I get to play as an adult. I get to play with sensations. I get to play with roles. I get to play with the shadow parts of myself. I get to play with shame. Um, I think it's also been...
1: By facing your
0: shame? Sometimes by eroticizing it. Can Um,
1: can you be more specific?
0: Yeah, so I would say... um, Let's say we're talking about the perfectionism thing, right? So something that has appealed to me within the kink and BDSM realm is the idea of being a good girl. (laughs) And so this can be seen in a lot of different dynamics, um, but specifically this dynamic of um, what we call like a daddy dom and Mm -hmm. a a young, a little girl. And I don't mean a little girl that under 18 person, we're talking adults who are role-playing this. And so I know that I have a lot of, Shame and pain around perfectionism around being special around being good, around doing the right thing, and so a lot of times we eroticize those shame and pain points, and so I have eroticized it in a way that when i 'm engaging with somebody in kink and bdsm I like to know that i 'm special to them. I like to know that i 'm being a good girl, I like to know that they 're impressed with like what i 'm doing, and so Um, I'm able to kind of own this part of me and instead of just like having that perfectionism like happen to me, I feel like I get to kind of re-narrate it, own it, and have these experiences where I get to sort of engage with that pain point, but then it becomes pleasurable and eroticized in a way where it's like, oh, I am being such a good girl. Oh, that's so nice, right? Um, and it becomes, um, it becomes fun. It becomes pleasurable. It becomes corrective, um, and I get to sort of have this safe space in which to reproduce uh, these scenes from my life that may have caused pain. But now I get to own them. Now I get to redirect them. Now I get to have these corrective ones where I'm in charge.
1: And you're and you're choosing for the experience to happen. Exactly, which is exactly so huge. And you know one of the surveys that, that people fill out anonymously uh, for the podcast is called the Shame and Secret Survey. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of questions, and one is about traumatic things that have happened to us, and then another one is, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, sometimes there's such an obvious link between their trauma and their turn-on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you probably read the book The Erotic Mind by yes, Jack, Jack Moore. Morin. Uh-huh. uh That was one of my grad school books. Yeah. And and it it was such uh an informative book for me yeah. to read. Um why don't you explain the, the gist of, of his book, especially as it relates to what we're talking about.
0: Oh gosh. I'm like I like I noticed my body tense up by being like, Oh god, what <laughs> did I read in grad school? What's the summary? Yeah. Um From what I recall, he was talking just a lot about, like, how our fantasies are shaped. Um, And I like to preface, when I I think about his work or just this work in general, um, I know there's already a lot of sort of shame and judgment around fantasies and kink and BDSM. So I like to preface by saying sometimes we don't know why we're into something. And even if you find out that the why is somehow trauma-related or something, that does not make it wrong or bad. Um, or
1: mean that we liked it when it happened.
0: Exactly. And it also doesn't mean that um, if you know what it is and you heal from that, that you might stop being into that thing. Sometimes that can happen. But I like to really preface that like, just because we sometimes eroticize or find corrective ways to have our fantasies be healing for us, that doesn't mean that just because you're into this, you're fucked up, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he talks about that in different ways in the book, too, of just kind of like normalizing, exploring the, the shadow sides mm-hmm. of like why we're into things, how we're into things, and, and just kind of normalizing it. And just to give an example, um, a lot of folks will talk about uh, consensual non-consent, which is basically rape or force fantasies. Um, And so a lot of people who have experienced unwanted sexual touch may actually have fantasies about non-consensual experiences. And this can be really freaking scary for folks like that because they're like, does that mean I wanted it? Does that mean I liked it? What's wrong with me? They feel sick. They feel gross. Um, They can feel really ashamed. But it's it's quite common because like I said, when it's a fantasy, you get to re-narrate and have a corrective experience. And I can't remember if it was Jack Morin or another author that I read in grad school, but one of them had a quote that said, fantasy is the original theater of the mind. And I really liked that quote. Yeah. So it might be the late Jack Morin, might be somebody else.
1: And, and if I remember correctly, uh, Jack said something along the lines of the moral hurdle of a fantasy that we have because it goes against our morals or mm-hmm. it's around something that causes us Anxiety in real life can actually turbocharge turn the, tu- song, the, 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 the turn on right. of it, and I think that's something that that I wish so many people knew because yeah. they're so shaming self shaming about the thing that they they have no control over, which is what turns them on I mean obviously yeah. they have the control over how they express it
0: right. Yeah, fant- and that's another thing. Fantasies don't always equal behavior. A lot of times they don't, right? And we have fantasies all day, every day. Like how many times have if you're listening? Have you fantasized about throwing rocks at a car or something that cut you off or putting a steaming pile of shit on some ex's doorstep, right? Like, or when someone's carrying, this is my favorite one, when someone's carrying a big tray of stuff, just that image of like, what if I, I just kind of want to flip that over <laughs> to see what happens. Um, and then most of us don't do it because we know there's consequences. So. We fantasize about things all the time. That doesn't mean it's going to turn into a behavior. Um, and the more we push away that fantasy, it usually has a backfire effect because of the shame. But a little bit of shame can be really sexy. A little bit of shame can become erotic and a turn on. It's sort of like a gas and brake pedal situation where if you're like fully on the shame thing, you might not get aroused and can, and can struggle with sexual functioning. But a little bit of it is good um so finding that playing with that balance can be really delightful
1: so talk about um what you began to experience as you embraced that that shadow part of yourself and was it through therapy was it kind of you just intuitively uh following your your instinct and yeah. wanting to play wanting to let go of the perfectionist part how how do you, i guess what i'm asking is um what's
0: it like on the other side
1: what's it like on the other side and how do you begin to know that you're on the other side
0: i guess i don't know if there's ever another side completely but i would say the therapy first helped me kind of create the the framework and then the therapy has also helped me integrate these things and so that's often what i help clients with is maybe they have i work with a lot of people who are into kink and bdsm or in alternative relationships and so um that can be a space to both plan for things to make sure you're not just repeating your trauma in a way that feels, yeah, like you're just repeating your trauma. Because sometimes when people engage in things if they haven't done that insight work and they're just repeating the harmful thing in a way that they're not integrating, that can cause, I think, more detriment to somebody. And so having the talk therapy or other kinds of therapy has been a way for me to prepare and then integrate. And so I would say for me on a broader scale, Um, It's just opened up this whole other world of ways that I can explore and play, like I said. So now there's just like so much, I think it's just given me a lot of permission. So now there's so much permission for me to be like, whoa, I'm into that and have like no shame about it and be like, "Hmm, I could get curious about why. And that's interesting. But also like, how do I find a cool, fun, consensual, ethical way to like go do that? So it's been a lot of permission to just like be creative, to play, to live my life. Um. And then I think with the specific, you know, kink that I was talking about, and, and how I play with that, I do think it's given me more confidence. Um, it's given me a space to kind of like contain that. And sure, I am not completely on the other side. I still struggle with this, but it's a way for me to continue to work on it and to have this contained space to um, to put that mm-hmm. so that it doesn't eke out into the rest of my life as much.
1: What percentage of people? do you think are totally comfortable with the things that turn them on?
0: (laughs) Very low percentage. I would say the amount that I work with shame, uh, with the people I work with is so high. Um, I think people have this sort of dichotomy where they want to be normal, but they also want to be special. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of walk this line of like, how do you feel special, but not so special that you feel like a weirdo who's doing all these gross, horrible things. Um, so that's a big part of my work is like helping people connect with community and reminding them that if they thought of it, there's probably someone else out there who's already playing with it um, that they could connect with, speak to, and, you know, figure out a, a fun way to work with that.
1: One of the things I see in the surveys is when somebody has uh, a a turn on that we would consider as as society – normal, safe, not a shadow self, Mm -hmm. the first thing they do is apologize about how boring and vanilla they are. Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, I see that too. I see people being ashamed now for being like too vanilla. (laughs) And that to me is not being sex positive. Sex positive doesn't mean that you're like a kinky slut all the time. And I say slut with love because that's the name of my podcast. Sluts (laughs) Sluts and scholars. Yes, thank you. Um, But it also means supporting someone who's not into that stuff. But to me, what's important is making sure that someone feels safely exposed to all the options on the menu, so they're making an informed choice about what they're into or not, as opposed to like, oh, I'm in this box because I never knew there were other options. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: And good place to segue into what are the landmines or red flags for somebody who is deciding, I want to explore this you know maybe i like giving up control or maybe i like taking control and i have these fantasies about it
0: mm-hmm.
1: how do i go uh about exploring that exploring that i, I yeah. would imagine if they're not aware of boundaries or yeah. Yeah. what is safe or not safe or right. what the red flags are yeah. talk, talk about that speak to that person who's listening who is like? Oh, I'd like to know. I I'd, I'd like to engage in that, but I don't know where to begin.
0: Yeah. So I would say for folks who are into kink and BDSM, and I wish the, the whole world used a lot of these things. And and that's not to say that look, there are unfortunately bad actors in every community, but in general, kink and BDSM places as a community places a lot of emphasis on consent, on negotiations, on discussions, transparency, on transparency on consent on. Um, safer sex conversations, including physical, emotional, spiritual, um, on having checks and balances. And again, like I said, unfortunately there are bad actors in every community, but these are sort of the tenets um, that it's built on. And so the good news is, if this is something you're interested in, you don't have to do it alone. And I would never recommend doing it alone because it is sort of like a still a marginalized space. It I think it's so important to have community, community to learn from, community to check and balance safety. Um, Community to not feel like a weirdo, um, you know, all these things. So, there are classes. You can take classes online. There are uh, professional um, dominatrixes or professional, you know, of of all genders that you could go to who teach and do classes, some pre recorded, some one on one work. You can go to a sex coach who specializes in this. You can um, reach out to a sex therapist like me. You can listen to some podcasts. um, But Working in that realm can be beautiful and wonderful, but I would really advise people to not go into it un- unwittingly and irresponsibly um, because you are sort of carrying a lot of, um, you're working with a lot of power. And it's important to uh, be informed, have these checks and balances, and also be aware of your your own maybe uh, growing edges because if you're not aware of those, that's where you can cause, I think, harm to yourself and others, or at least being open to know yes. that you have them. You might not know what they are until you rub up against them, but at least have a integration system in place to make sure that you're going to be able to address those when they pop up because this kind of play will force you to look at those things.
1: Uh, list, if you can, uh, the types of kinks that, that people can explore. You mentioned. Uh, oh
0: man, that list goes on and on and they, on. <laughs> uh,
1: you mentioned the the da- good girl, daddy, daughter, uh-huh. um, submissive, dominant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are What are some other?
0: Oh gosh. Okay. Well, just to um, just to kind of go through the acronym, I guess. So bondage. Some people are into um, being tied up, tying other people, um, being flying around in the air while being tied, uh, those kinds of things. Um, And then under that umbrella, there might be like, oh, well, do you like rope? Do you like chains? Do you like leather straps? Do you like harnesses? Do you like this? Do you like that? So there's a whole array. And pain, right? Do you like pain? Do you not like pain? What kinds of sensations are you interested in? Um, Under the um, discipline thing, um, you might think of maybe more like feelings you want to experience. So like. Some people, like, do you like to be degraded or do you like to be a good girl? Do you like to, like you said, do you like pain or do you like other sensations? Um, And then with the dominant submission thing, you know, it's like, do you like to be told what to do or do you like to be in charge? Do you like to um, play with power do you like to not play with power? Maybe you just like simple blindfolds or spanking. Um, Are you into certain kinds of outfits? The amount of things that are out there is an endless list. And so if you're feeling overwhelmed, but you're curious what might be out there, I would encourage you to go look up a yes, no, maybe list. Um, This is basically a list that will list different actions, but also different feelings and words and behaviors and sort of core erotic elements to see what you feel in your body as you're reading through them. Um, a good one that I like was done by a colleague, um, Bex Talk Sex, B-E-X Talk Sex. So if you just Google Bex mm-hmm. Talk Sex, yes, no, maybe list, um, you can find a pretty comprehensive list to figure out what you're into. Um, I might also invite people to figure out what their erotic blueprint is, which was created by an educator named Miss Jaya. Um, and basically it's sort of like what are some core erotic themes that make up what you're into at this moment in your life and then based on that that can help you sort of figure out your way in Uh, because some people are into certain things because they like the power or the shame elements some people are into things because they want to feel a certain sensation Um, but I think I'm biased because I'm a sex therapist but it's really nice to do this with the support of somebody so they can help you unpack the shame the interests give you psychoeducation um, so get some help.
1: What do you say to the person, let's say, who's in a marriage mm-hmm. and they have a kink and they've hinted at it to their partner and they don't feel like it it was received and they're afraid of maybe being more vocal about it or they're feeling alone in, in what turns them on? Yeah. What uh,
0: I mean, I first just want to normalize that that's so common that most of us who are in partnerships are in a partnership that has some kind of differing desire, whether that be the amount, the frequency, the style of sex and pleasure, how we experience sex and pleasure. We're not the same person. So and then usually people find themselves attracted to someone who's their opposite. And mm-hmm. at the beginning, that's fun and sexy and exciting. But then after time, you're like, why the fuck aren't you more like me? You mm-hmm. <laughs> want to do all the things I want to do. So I just want to normalize that that's pretty normal. Um, First, I would say it would be important to kind of figure out and get a little more clear with yourself on what role you want this kink or desire to play in your life. So that would be, you know, reading the books, going to a therapist or a coach um, to help you kind of get a little clearer on, is this something that I want to just stay my fantasy that I'm happy just having with myself? Is this something I want to engage with with a partner? How? What are the limits? What would that look like? Um, so getting some support from someone to help you get a little clearer on it and then it can also be helpful because going to a person like that is going to help you practice getting those words in your mouth because talking about vulnerable things is already can be scary but talking about something where you don't even you haven't even said the words in your mouth out loud can be even scarier So going to someone to practice this language, getting those words, those terms in your mouth, getting some education about it, Um, and then um, once you do that, and hopefully that person can also help you figure out how you can have these conversations. Um, But I'm a big fan of what I would call like the shit sandwich technique. Have you heard that before? No. It's basically like say the nice thing, say the hard thing, say the nice thing. Mm. Um, So for example. Maybe you could say, if you know that it's a person that you're with that you feel safe with, that you've been able to talk to about other stuff with. If you haven't been, that's another therapy topic, right? And that could either be your own shame to be vulnerable or if they haven't received your request or don't listen to you, you may need some couples therapy. But if it's someone who you know cares about you and cares about your well-being, your pleasure, whatever, I'm a big fan of this shit sandwich technique so it would sound something like um, hey you know I feel so close to you when you hear me out and don't judge me on things remember when you did that with this other thing like gosh I just you were so sexy when you did that and you know what I was listening to uh, this podcast the other day (laughs) with this uh, sex therapist and she was talking about these things and uh, you know, I was kind of interested in this. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to uh, listen to that with me. Like, oh, uh, I just love being able to talk to you about this stuff. Like, it's so great to have somebody who um, who cares about my pleasure.
1: I, I, I love it, especially because it's just kind of dipping the toe in the water. Yeah. You know, rather than vomiting up the stuff that we're afraid we're going to be judged for so we can get right. it over with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a fan and I'm fine with clients doing this for me is blaming me, blaming me, blaming my podcast, blaming this podcast, blaming a book, blaming an article, being like, oh, you know what? I was reading this like crazy article the other day that was talking about this thing and then I was kind of like, well, that's interesting. I have an idea. Will you read this with me? And, uh, you know, um, I'm also a fan of the name it to tame it thing. Have you heard that term before? I have,
1: but to talk about it.
0: Just like... Naming the fear, naming the awkwardness, which is, I know, scary and vulnerable to do, but it's sort of like what we were talking about with Kink that like you're owning it. So instead of waiting to have the embarrassment or the shame or the response um, be done to you, it's instead being like, "I'm owning this thing." So I might say, like, "Hey, I'm really scared to talk about this thing with you. Um, I don't know how to do it. I'm worried that you're going to shame me. Will you help me?" I love it, and so that's fucking scary to do, but it's kind of owning like you've already named it, and right. then once it's named, I find that softens the receiver, the listener as well, but also like you've taken ownership over that that fear, that sensation.
1: Talk about the person who's in a relationship. You know, maybe they're married, maybe they have kids, and they've broached the subject to their partner. You know, I I, I like to be spanked. And to be verbally yeah. degraded, and their partner is like, Ugh. "That's against God's will," oh, mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever it is that that makes me really uncomfortable. And 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 the person who has this kink, yeah. it's the only thing that can bring them to orgasm. Mm. And so they they are going to spend the rest of their marriage
0: Trying to keeping, out-
1: keeping that inside themselves. Yeah. I would imagine there's a feeling of loneliness Absolutely. in them. How, how do you, how do they deal with that? How do you deal with that, with them as a therapist?
0: Yeah. I mean, I had this in my partnership, actually, in that some of the things that I was like into when I first shared them with my partner, because he hadn't heard them before, he was sort of like, Ugh, I don't know if I'm into that. I don't know about that. Um, which is always hard to, to hear. Um, and luckily because I'm so pro therapy, pro whatever, like we had somebody to talk about it with. So I'm, I'm always going to defer to like, get a therapist, get a sex therapist. You don't have to do this by yourself. Um, but the interesting thing was, and I do this with my clients too, is sometimes people don't understand the underpinnings of like what excites us about something. And to get to really, like, the core erotic theme. Um, and so when we just say the action, they may have their own association with it. So let's just say, like, it's spanking or something. If someone grew up in a, an abusive childhood home where they were spanked and it caused them harm, and then they hear their partner wants to be spanked, they're like, well, why would you want to feel that pain and
1: harm? And you hand them Jack Moran's
0: book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um And so we might explore like, well, what is it about the spanking that's exciting for you? And I really try to help people peel it back to the base layer of whatever it is. So whether it's like, you know, I like to feel held. I like to feel warmth on my body. I like to feel impact because it brings me back to my body. Uh, Whatever it is, helping people get to that base human desire and sensation and see if there's a way that their partner can understand that language.
1: That makes sense.
0: Um, That's why I I do like that erotic blueprint approach, and um, I actually really liked the, uh, I'm not a fan of everything this company does, but Goop put out a special on Netflix called Sex, Love, and Goop, Um, and they featured a lot of couples, a lot of real couples, and some that thought that they were not congruent in their desires. But really what it was is they were different kind of erotic blueprints, kind of like we think of love languages, and they're speaking a different language. And so one person hears one thing and they don't understand kind of the base root of it and they're like, I could never speak that language. Um, but if we have a willingness to learn each other's language and get to that base root of it, we can have more overlap than we thought, but also we can find a way to speak each other's language. Now, of course, there's going to be partners who don't have a willingness to learn your language and like aren't willing to join you in that. So I think at that point, and if they're not willing to go to therapy, they're not willing to work with you, they're not willing to put in the effort, it's just a no, no, no. I think you have to decide how long can you go on hiding this part of yourself. Are there other ways to get that need met? Can you be okay with having a rich fantasy life? Can you be? Are they okay with it? Are you okay with connecting mm-hmm. with other people in community? Are they open to non-monogamy? Um, are they open to alternatives and figuring out this desire discrepancy, yeah. um, and then asking yourself if they're really not, not willing to do that work, am I willing to not have this in my life? Is this a deal breaker for me? Um, unfortunately, sometimes, sometimes it is.
1: Uh, a suggestion I have as well is if that person isn't interested in role playing, one of the things that can can bring you together that is kind of a compromise is as you're struggling to reach orgasm and you've got that fantasy in your head, ask if they're okay if you voice what that fantasy is mm. to share with them what it is that you're thinking about.
0: Have you read, um, is that David Schnarch? Mm-mm. Okay, he talks about that. Um, he's got a book, I can't remember if that's his first name, but Schnarch is his mm-hmm. name. He has a book called Passionate Marriage and it's about exactly that where it's like if you decide you're willing to share your fantasy, which I know can be scary, is your partner at least willing to join you in sharing that fantasy so that the fantasy feels like something that connects you rather right. than, oh, I'm just gonna do it on my own. And nobody knows what's going on in your mind. Right. Jack Moran talks about this too. So like, it is okay to have your fantasy be your own private Idaho, you know? Like, yes, I think it if it's something you want to share with your partner and it feels you feel alone. That's different, but if you can be okay with like knowing that there's not something inherently wrong with you if you're fantasizing about other things when you're connecting with someone and finding a way to feel more connected with them and having that fantasy and having that be an addition, um, you don't have to tell anybody what's in there.
1: And so it, it is not unhealthy or something to try to change if you go into the Rolodex while you're having uh sex with a person or or are there varying degrees to that where you're like this is this is not healthy because you're completely checked out yeah Uh, how do you how do you navigate that gray area
0: i think there are varying degrees and i'm sure people would disagree with me because there's a lot of sex negative therapists out there or more monogamously minded therapists who are like no it's wrong to think about or be attracted to or be doing that and you're dissociated and Yes, I think there are some folks who might take it to a point where they feel lonely, where they feel disconnected, where their partner feels unseen, where their partner just feels like used as a receptacle, but not in a fun, kinky, consensual way. Um, So I guess I wouldn't say it's up to me to decide what's healthy for that couple, but I want to help people figure out individually and as a partnership what role fantasy plays in their relationship. How much are they supporting each other and having those things? How much are they supporting themselves in having that? Are they able to um, stay connected to themselves enough in a way that feels pleasurable? So I kind of help people figure out like what feels like the, the boundaries and comforts of for themselves and for their relationship as opposed to me being like, this is healthy and this is unhealthy. Um, I don't like that black and white approach. What
1: are some of the signs that a, uh, someone's sexuality... Is uh, problematic yeah. for for their their life. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some of the signs? What are some of the the red flags?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I like that you framed it that way. There there are a lot of folks who operate from like a sex addiction um, approach. Uh, I don't operate from that. Um, sex addiction is actually not something that's found in our diagnosis manual. It's not something that's recognized by most international health organizations, uh, but there are sexual behaviors that can cause harm, that can feel problematic, that can feel out of control, that can feel compulsive. Um, and for those, we're usually looking at, is this, um, is this negatively impacting somebody's day-to-day life? You know, is it Be getting, it someone
1: else or, or the person.
0: Yeah. Is it, is it getting in the way of their work? Is it getting in the way of their relationship? Is it causing them personal distress? Um, is it causing harm to somebody else, you know, non-consensually? Um, and it's interesting because that doesn't necessarily mean, sometimes it means that the behavior in and of itself is maybe objectively harmful when it's like abuse or harm against a child and things like that. Um, but other times it's not always the activity or the behavior, it's how we feel about the activity or the behavior. So like I've had people come to me who thought that they Behavior was problematic because that's what they learned. And I'm like, well, what is it? And they're they're like, well, I masturbate once a day. <laughs> right? So it depends who you ask. And that's where the sex addiction thing can be problematic. Cause sometimes under that approach, practitioners have a projected idea of like, here's when things are good, here's when things are bad, here's when they're out of control. So I kind of help people figure out, well, what does what does a healthy sexuality look like for you? What does it look like for the people around you? How is it impacting you? How is it impacting the world around you? How do you feel about it? Are
1: you going outwardly against your moral code?
0: Yeah, exactly. Or, or do you not have a moral code and you're harming people? And, and that's different than we're looking at you know, people who have more antisocial and or narcissistic things that might be causing harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like I said, it's helping figure out like what is their value system where does this fit in? How do we work with that? Um, is it aligning? Is it actually the behavior that's the problem, or is it the way they feel about the behavior? And and what's sort of the root symptom? Sorry, what's sort of the root cause of this symptom?
1: What What do you? What are your feelings around the topic of pornography that portrays uh, non consensual situations? Um, because there's a wide variety yeah. of the way it is executed. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, talk. I know that's a really open-ended question, but yeah. it's something that there's, there's. It's very polarizing people's mm-hmm. opinion on it, and it seems to me like something that's that's not black. Yeah. And why and and in general what is your opinion on uh pornography?
0: Yeah, um I would say in general I'm a fan <laughs> mm-hmm. of <laughs> but, pornography. Yes, but let's let's delve into it a little more. I think a lot of people like to scapegoat porn as the problem. Um and of course within every system there can be issues. Um and because of our sort of puritanical roots, I think a lot of people like to scapegoat pornography. Um, for me, the issue is not usually porn. And when I say porn, I mean consensual ethical porn. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be porn. Right. Um, it would be something else. It would be abusive. It would be, you know, exploitative. Um, and what to me is more the issue is the lack of comprehensive sex ed in our culture. And so I think people like to blame porn, but porn is entertainment. I mean, sometimes it can be educational and you know, teach us what we like, or sometimes there's educational types of, of porn content or erotic content. Um, but if we had comprehensive sex education, and if we taught younger people how to have critical thinking around mm-hmm. this, they would be able to look at it and be like, oh, I know this is entertainment. I know these are professional sexual athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes amateur sexual right. athletes, um, to be able to look at it and know that as opposed to not getting any sex education and then looking to porn to be your thing. In our um, in my field, we have this saying, you wouldn't learn how to drive from watching the Fast and the Furious just like you shouldn't learn how to fuck from watching porn. Right. Um, and so porn is fantasy. Porn is um, entertainment. And so when we talk about consensual non-consent scenes, um, you know, there are obviously different companies and things that do better in terms of making sure that things are done safely, ethically, that there's proper negotiations, that there's um, required people on set to look for safety to make sure things are are, are going well. And so obviously when it's done um, from that framework, and there there's ways to do more research on the companies and content you're watching, but you just often have to pay. And a lot of people don't want to pay. Um, but, you know, with that, I think... That can be a lovely outlet for people. Um, And there's nothing, you know, if it's consensual, if there's care, um, if there's intentionality, there's nothing wrong with having projected views of those fantasies.
1: What are red flags? Because I imagine a lot of people are like, I don't even want to risk watching something that might be feeding the exploitation of someone. Mm How do I, you talked about researching companies, are there red flags when you're watching something where you're like, uh, this, this is not something that uh, is helping society. This is This is something where somebody's being exploited.
0: Yeah, it can be hard to tell just when you're watching because if someone's just like a movie, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody's, I don't know, think of non-pornographic content. Do we have these conversations about non-pornographic movies? What do you think?
1: That that's a, a great question because you in hindsight you'll hear somebody usually a, a a female actor who will share uh in fact I think the the woman who starred with Marlon Brando in mm-hmm. um oh god, what was the name of that movie in seventy
0: in, two? In oh, uh it was I'm rated sure.
1: X. Um but she said that she felt forced into yeah. some of the uh Sexual scenes by the director and and by Marlon. Uh, yeah. yeah, Brando. I can't believe. Luckily,
0: I'm, I'm... luckily, there are intimacy coordinators now. Um, right. On sometimes on porn sets, sometimes on regular film sets, and these are folks who are trained to help um, make sure that intimate scenes um, are done with risk awareness, as safe as possible, with ethics, with care, um, and so you can look and see, you know, does this company... Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango in Paris, okay. Um, but, yeah, we don't talk about it as much in mainstream film, right, because we're like, oh, they're actors, right? Right? We, we're not thinking about maybe how, does, how did that scene affect them, um, unless you're, you know, now we know a little bit more of that and watching things like, you know, the Jim Carrey special and Truman Show and things like that. Um, but I think it's, it's so interesting because people ask these questions a lot more around erotic content because i think of the shame and stigma and our culture that like people couldn't possibly be wanting that or like this Mm -hmm. is bad and so i wish we talked about it more in a general sense of all film um and in terms of like vetting like i said i think um you know doing content from people who are um, their own boss so a lot of like self-produced content where people are um their own you know they're writing the scenes they're starring in the scenes they're editing the scenes and they're getting all the money um, so seeing that people are, like, in charge of their own business. Um,
1: do some companies come to mind that, that you would recommend that you know to be ethical and, and safe?
0: Yeah, I would say it's interesting because I don't know if anyone is ever 100% ethical. I think there's companies that are, like, striving um, to do more. Um, so, like, there's a company called, like, Belessa, and they're trying to do more. How like, do you spell or, that? B-E-L-L-E-S-A, I think. Um, and they're they kind of target themselves as more like porn for women, but they're sort of like advocating for for more like feminist porn in the in the ones that they produce. Um, there's also a company um, that I think sponsored my podcast called afterglow. And so it's it's sort of like companies that make sure they're including the folks that are working in the sort of production of it. Um, and you know, you can also um, Yeah. I think I'd have to think on this a little bit more. And I think it's a great question that you're asking too, because as the consumer who's maybe just trying to experience some pleasure thing, they maybe don't want to think about it. Right. Um, and so,
1: which is what I do when I order from Amazon.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We find this dissonance of like, Oh, I hate this guy, but like, Oh, it's really quick if this would just get here. Yes. And so I guess my invitation more is to think about like, what are your kind of current value systems and and thinking about what are the things that are important to you to help guide you to look for that
1: yeah uh let's talk about equine therapy. that was another thing that your p r person mentioned yeah, uh, I may
0: have to um what,
1: what oh, we are it's three ten
0: okay, I just have to pop out by like I have to leave by like three thirty
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, I might think probably five minutes more and cool. and we'll be good. I'd love to keep talking to yeah. you
0: I just clients are waiting yes
1: uh so talk about equine therapy how you got into it uh shout out to the amazing movie buck oh my god
0: yes um buck brand yeah a lot of people love uh that was
1: the name of the movie right yeah, yeah. about the guy that does uh equine therapy yeah
0: buck Brannaman,
1: yeah who who is the horse yeah. whisperer yes correct yeah um
0: I just got distracted thinking about your question from before about the the ethical porn. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like going back to that for a second because I want to make sure I'm doing it justice. Um I talk a lot about this on my podcast as well. So yes. I I would Let's encourage let, people let's to segue by talking
1: yeah. about ethical porn that involves horses. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um it wouldn't because they can't consent. Um but you can have uh you can have people people acting as horses. <laughs> Um, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when I tell people that I do sex therapy and equine therapy, you know, they get a, a look on their face that's like, who's fucking the horses? <laughs> <laughs> There's no bestiality. I'm not saying that is okay and consensual. Um, it does not have to do with that. Um, equine assisted therapy is basically um, working with horses in partnership um, as a way to enhance the therapeutic experience for people. And so, horses or equine therapy is a type of what we call experiential therapy, meaning you're learning through experience, you're learning through doing, um, as opposed to just talking about it. And so, when it comes to sex and relationship topics, equine therapy can help with things like anxiety, trauma, depression, relational dynamics, boundary configurations, um, self expression, self confidence, trust. Trust, yeah, all, all sorts of topics. And so, we're not overtly. Having people practice sexual things, it's more like the themes and the feelings uh, behind that, and we're being in relationship with these non-judgmental creatures, and so we're able to explore relational dynamics in a cool in a cool way. And so, what that can look like is sometimes we have more guided like experiences or activities that folks can do. So, for example, that would look more like, let's say. Let's say somebody is working on their boundaries. I might have them create a space in the arena that represents their boundary. Um, And then we would, you know, have them connect with a horse. We'd bring that horse in. And their goal is to keep that horse the distance they want to keep it from the boundary using nonverbal communication, using, um, using energy. And based on how they're doing with their boundaries, I get to see in real time what happens when someone or something tries to cross the oh, boundary. Oh wow!
1: I, it's so funny. I just imagined all equine therapy just earning a, a horse's trust and kissing it on the nose.
0: That could be your session for right. sure. That,
1: it would be. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so the one I was saying before is a bit more guided and yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's a bit more like uh, activity based, but other times it's Horses have a lot of mirror neurons, and they are prey animals, and they are herd animals, evolutionarily speaking. And so they can be really great at something called co-regulation, uh, meaning like matching breath, matching heartbeat, uh, because what's good for the collective is, is good for them. And so sometimes just being around the animals and connecting with them in relationship can be really helpful to um, healing and soothing with somebody's nervous system. And so sometimes we're not doing guided stuff, sometimes we're just like being slow, being mindful, building a relationship, forming that connection and trust and, and that can be so healing for people to have that kind of connection and relationship with a huge living, breathing entity or to just have that around as a resource when we're talking about tough stuff to be able to slow their heart rate down, come back to the present moment. Um, horses are great at being in the present moment because it doesn't serve them to hold on to stuff um, doesn't mean they can't necessarily be traumatized but they they have a lot more ways to kind of shake things off than mm-hmm. humans allow themselves to do um, so that can sometimes be another way there might be a session where it's just like let's connect with this horse and and have a loving non judgmental type of relationship and you get to kiss him on the nose and that's it <laughs> yeah. so it, it can look really different based on what you're working through
1: Uh. One more question, yeah. and I actually would hate to end on this one, so I'll try to think of another <laughs> question so, okay. so this isn't the end. But one of the things that gets filled out in the surveys a lot yeah. is somebody holding on to the shame that they, uh, when they were a child, and it typically tends to be a, a, a girl whose sexuality was budding and she encouraged the dog to lick her vagina. And, and they are still steeped in shame they think they're a terrible person and obviously you know when we're talking about non-consensual stuff with with animals and and adults it it seems like a different situation than a kind of an innocent child exploring something but i don't know how to put it into words to say that (laughs) i hear what
0: you're saying thanks for asking the tough questions i appreciate that um i mean look we when we're young and we don't know any different, and no one's teaching us about sex, you know, we, as humans, learn from an early age that rubbing here, doing this there, doing that there, and it's so funny because your dog is licking my hands over the <laughs> table as we talk about this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Boundaries, crazy. Um, yes, um, but you know, it's 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 hard if you don't have any experience or teaching or somebody guiding you. So like. I'm not saying you should beat yourself up and torture yourself forever that you, like, harmed an animal and and chances are you ideally, hopefully, <laughs> didn't and they just enjoyed licking that peanut butter or whatever, mm-hmm. but, like, now that you know, what do you want your sort of, like, values and and things to be? And again, I sort of, like, put that into the category of, like, probably happening because we have a lack of comprehensive sex ed where someone, like, didn't know how to ask for their needs, get their needs met, talk about it, ask for anything so they're just, like, if I do this thing, it feels nice, like, oh, well, the dog's here, you know. So, right. I mean, it's, I think it's complicated, and I, obviously, if it was a client, you know, I might work with them about owning responsibility, but also finding compassion to forgive themselves for things and figuring out how do they want to, you know, ethically move through the, the world now um, and find other ways to get their, their needs and desires met. Love
1: it. Uh, well, let's end with this. Where can people find out more about you? <laughs> the name of your podcast is "Sluts and Scholars." Yes. Um, and where can we find you on social media?
0: Thanks for asking. Um, so yeah, the podcast "Sluts and Scholars." You can find me on Instagram at sluts and scholars or therapy with Nicoletta. Um, you can also find my websites that way, and uh, the podcast is available um, anywhere you get your podcasts. And, uh, and com also has all the episodes, um, and you can connect with me there as well.
1: Uh, and I would love for the show notes if you could include any kind of resource link uh, that we either talked about or you might have forgotten to talk about that you, you want people to know about.
0: Absolutely. You know, I would love to put together a list, and there's some great videos and listings out there about how to vet the mm. adult content you're looking at. and so. I would like to do that justice, and I would love to provide uh, listeners with a list of like how to see if your porn is ethical, mm-hmm. um, and things that you can do to kind of do that and help you help you find your way. Yeah. So I'll send that to you, so folks can access that and hopefully find ways to make uh, informed choices um, about that. But I'm always happy to follow up on these resources if you reach out to me as well in terms of the the kink exploration and stuff. I love to give mm-hmm. people referrals. So. If you're not working with me, I'm happy to give a referral.
1: Uh, And is there a link so I can stop ordering from Amazon? (laughs) I think I I might need individual therapy for that. I can help you with
0: that because I, too, am on this dissonant train of like, it's so easy. And what do we do?
1: And it feels like such a personal victory if I go to a different website and buy it directly from Uh. something. I just feel like I've fed the poor.
0: It's you know it is good and that's i guess what we're trying to invite people to do with this other thing is like take a little longer to be uh, to know what you're putting into and onto and mm-hmm. interacting with in the in the world um so oh, there's a lot of things we do in this world that are incongruent and dissonant yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and it's just another opportunity to be self-forgiving, <laughs> compassionate and make a note to self to try to do better next time but understand that we're we're going to fall short sometimes.
0: Yeah, and decide how much of a, a value that being intentional and congruent is to you. Yeah.
1: Nicoletta, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. love
1: talking to her. Let's see uh, if we have any ads to run. Take a little break. This is from the FEARS survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls her cell phone. We had another one of her uh, surveys. Uh, This is filled up by a woman who calls herself, there's something in the way, yeah? And uh, share something you fear. I'm crippled with sadness over bad stuff going on in my life. Uh, And for the suffering for other helpless beings. I'm just so sad and I don't see any way out of it. A friend of mine, whom is a doctor, has recommended me to dig into something called metacognitive therapy. It's a type of therapy where it's not about examining what the difficult thoughts are about, but what function they have. I think it's something like that, at least. And it's about being able to control invasive thoughts of worry so that they don't take over. I would love to be able to do that because worrying doesn't help really. But then again, it's like, even though I know my worrying over sad stuff will not change the sad stuff right now, I still feel I must worry Because it's my feelings that are just so incredibly affected that I cannot not worry. It's like crying if you hurt yourself physically. It happens automatically. For me, it's the same with worrying. I'm hurting emotionally over stuff out of my reach. I feel sadness, bitterness, regret, anger, defeat. I must worry when those feelings are here because I can't free myself from the feelings that come with the thoughts. It's like a curse of being empathetic sensible, and very alert to despair. And this is ruining my sleep. And then parentheses, but listening to this pod with a sleep and timer helps though. Thank you, Paul. Um, I get it. I get it. It's so hard. And that's one of the reasons why I say the serenity prayer. Um, And, you know, I do believe in a higher power, but there are times when I'm like, man, why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? And then the thought that pops into my head is that maybe this higher power isn't there to prevent the negative things, but rather to bring us comfort and morality in the midst of those things. And it's still (laughs) fucking hard. This is an email I got from a guy uh, who calls himself uh, Flanagan. And there's no message body, but um, the subject matter is realistic baby dolls. And I would imagine the reason that Flanagan didn't write anything is that he's busy crafting a realistic baby doll. And it's so weird that I got this email because I was just telling a friend of mine, we were talking and he said, my mother was just hit by a car and died. And I said, that's got to be terrible, but I just ordered a baby doll and it looks fake. And he was like, oh my God, what can I do? And I said, I just I just need you to be there for me because when I come home and I need that realistic baby doll eye contact and I have received a fake baby doll, I think I'm looking at a little zombie and I had a long day, not to mention when I try to burp what I think is a realistic baby doll. And nothing comes out, and then I think it's choking, and I give it a tiny Heimlich maneuver. And then I turn them around from mouth to mouth, and I'm looking at a statue. I'm looking at a fucking straight up fake baby doll. Now I've talked to my therapist about this. And my therapist said, you have fake baby doll PTSD. But that's still not helping me. When I look at the dead eyes of a fake baby doll, it's like a bolt of lightning, not going through me, but going through my shoes. And if you've ever experienced that, I'm here for you. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Danielle. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I tell myself that I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. I tell myself I'm not going to live for another 40 years. I tell myself that I deserve better than I give myself. I tell myself that I will be rich and less stressed out one day. Thank you for that, Danielle. Can I recommend... A realistic baby doll? Danielle, maybe you're a baby doll. I'm going to recommend a little time in the mirror and look right into it, stare right into your own eyes and go, am I a fake baby doll or am I a realistic baby doll? And I think the answer will come to you. Again, I'm not a therapist, Danielle. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. <laughs> Filled out by a guy who calls himself, my mom made me a raging homosexual. Dude, I read that name and I was like, if you live in Los Angeles, let's do an episode. Uh, he identifies as gay. Uh, <laughs> he qualifies it. He writes super gay. He's in his 20s, says that he was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was 16, I started talking to a man on a gay dating app who was 10 years older than me. We had sex and he quickly started love bombing me and drawing me in with compliments. I was really broken and just wanted to be validated, but instead I was abused by an adult man and that makes me feel sick. He told me he loved me and we talked for months. Eventually, he just stopped reaching out and the daily anxiety of not feeling like I am loved or have my feelings reciprocated was traumatizing. It was four years ago, but I know it still affects me and I still feel like it is my fault. I liked it. I wanted it. But now looking back on it, I can see how fucking disgusting that was. And I think that's one of the ways that, that predators, whether it's conscious or not, is they see that need. They see that need in the person's eyes. And, you know, so, so you know, it makes sense that you're telling yourself, oh, I wanted it or this or that. But what you, what you didn't want is what happens in the long run. And that's why they say that, you know, minors cannot consent because they don't see the full picture. And they won't until they're adults. And some people die never seeing the full picture, thinking it's their fault or this or that. And just because you enjoyed part of it or still fantasize about part of it does not mean that what happened to you was not fucked up. And that's one of the things that's so confusing about being an assault or abuse survivor. It's so complicated. He's been emotionally abused. He writes, my mom gaslights me often and completely denies that she is both a drug addict uh, and a drug counselor. One time she even told me my Adderall dose was too high because I was paranoid that she was driving me and her parents while high off her ass. I knew she was too. Something else that bothers me is that I also slept in her bed for many years until I was 11. And she was speaking to me like you would a husband or partner. She takes a keen curiosity in my sexuality and has asked me very inappropriate things about my sex life and relationships. The baby voice she uses, well you know my question, is that a fake baby voice? Or is that a realistic baby voice? Sounds like a baby fetish thing, and typing that out makes me want to vomit. One note to Paul, I appreciate your honesty with talking about your own experiences with your mom. It was the thing that made me realize what was wrong with my own dynamic. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Any positive experiences with abusers? I know my mom loves me in her own way, almost too much. You're the center of my universe and all that. It feels good at the moment. Yeah, telling a kid that you are the center of their universe is not a compliment. That is, you know, tell them that you value them so much and you're really important in their life, but the center of their universe, that that is... And the fact that... She's a drug counselor. I think I would think a fucking counselor would know more than that. Um, But, you know, drug counselors uh, aren't necessarily licensed therapists. So Uh, darkest thoughts. I've thought about the eulogy I will write for my mother. I'm ashamed that I feel like I will be relieved. Last year, my mother had a conversation with me where she told me that there were times when I was a child where she would go on drives late at night and wonder if I would be better off without her. Her ex-boyfriend had killed himself a few months earlier. I remember thinking, maybe you should have just done it with him. Maybe then I wouldn't be so fucked up. That's some horrible shit, but my mother should have never said that to me either. Darkest Secrets I used my mom's dildo for a few years when I was in high school. In the parentheses, what the fuck laughing my ass off. I seriously do not know. Uh, I do not know either. Trust me. Also add to that the list of covert incest shit. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Being dominated or being involved sexually with a boss, friend, or someone, quote, above Unquote me in some way. The taboo and the power dynamics are sexually appealing to me. It makes me feel a little confused because I feel like I like other things too and don't want to be pigeonholed into this submissive box. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't to? To my mom. I feel neglected by you. I don't blame you for what happened to you. But I can't continue to make excuses for you not being the mother that I needed. To put all of your heaviest emotions on me, even your soul worth as a human being, does not make you close to me. It's driving me away. And as much as I don't want to not have a relationship with you, I can't help but feel so utterly helpless. I don't appreciate how you put me on a pedestal for years. It feels patronizing. Patronizing. I feel like you see me as a shiny trophy for your mantle, so you can look at me and my accolades to feed your own ego. Don't you realize the pressure that that can be put on a child? How do you have a psychology degree and yet you're so painfully unaware of yourself? Please stop lying to everyone around you and admit that you are suffering. You need help. Get it for yourself because I cannot bear the weight of your life anymore. What if anything do you wish for? Inner peace and a happy life. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared almost everything here with at least one person. It went okay sometimes, but in some cases, it was too much for the other person, and I felt like I was burdening everyone around me when I was swallowed up by these heavy feelings I hadn't processed in childhood. How does it feel after writing these things down? I feel exhausted, but good. Thank you so much for that. Um... And I wonder if it would be beneficial for you to have a conversation with a therapist about setting boundaries with your mom. And, you know, the fact that she is struggling with drugs um, and probably has some type of buried sexual trauma of her own. Um, I mean, maybe not. I have the feeling, you know, if you, like, if you read... What would you like to say if you read that stuff to your mom? I, I have a feeling she would not be able to take it in because it sounds like she's in survival mode, but I don't know. Talk to a therapist. Maybe it'd be worth it for you to share that or at the very least to start setting some boundaries because my personal belief is that it's just, it's just too hard. It's just too hard to heal while allowing somebody close to us in our life to continue to drain us. Somebody had um, written in a in a survey that they would like to hear uh, the music that I that I do, because it's been a while since I, I put that. Uh, so I'm going to put that under uh, underneath this happy moment. This is filled out by uh, our friend Wildflower. And uh, she writes, I woke up feeling like I didn't want to be alive. That's pretty usual for me lately. On the way to work, I played this podcast. Halfway through the episode, I arrived at work in a better mood. Someone from another office was walking slowly into the building and when i looked at him he said he didn't want to be at work today i said to him the day will be over before you know it just try to keep busy and it will go fast i think i cheered him up because he said i never thought of it like that you are so positive little did he know just this morning i woke up wanting to die Got to the office and put on the rest of the podcast. And at the end, Paul played the nut butter skit. Uh, The nut butter skit that he did. I laughed to myself out loud at work like a crazy person. My whole day turned around thanks to you. And not only that, I was able to cheer someone else up too. Oh, and I got a job offer that day and an interview for another job. You really turned around my whole day. It meant a lot to me that you went to all the trouble to search past episodes and find something I had requested when you didn't even know me. I felt like for once in my life I mattered to someone. In parentheses, I'm happy crying. I wish I could hug you. Thank you so much. And as they say in the Barbie movie, this is the best day ever. That is so sweet. That is so sweet. And there's a part of my brain that is like, you narcissistic motherfucker. That's the third thing that you've read in this episode about how people like you or the podcast. And I'm going to tell that part of my brain, mean DJ voice to fuck off. Ooh, rock of the crowd cities. And then finally, this is uh just a simple love from Leah and, uh, Leo writes, I love being on this human ride. I heard somebody in a a support group years ago say, I look at life as a roller coaster and I could cling to the bar and cry and pray for it to be over. Or I could throw my hands up in the air and scream. And I thought I like that. I like that analogy. Cuz kind of like what we were talking before, the things that we can't control, we can't we can't control the shit life throws at us, but our attitude about it. And boy is that easier said than done, but you know, all the all the daily shit that I have to do to just get to the starting line. It's worth it. And sometimes I get so tired of it. Like, can't I just go have my coffee and start my day? Why do I need to fucking pray and meditate and (laughs) stretch for eight seconds? But um, when life is good, it's so good. It's so good. And when it's bad, it feels like it's never going to be good again. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful weird bizarrely everybody fucked up in some weird bizarrely it's beautifully it's fucked up in some weird way